everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. This week is a fun one. This week we are talking to the recording artist, the actress, author, publicist, and groupie, Cherry Vanilla. So Cherry Vanilla was born uh, Kathleen Doherty in New York City. And she's done a lot of different things. She started out kind of in, in uh, advertising around the Mad Men era. And then she became an actress and worked in um, with Andy Warhol as a part of his factory, uh, where he ca- she caught the eye of David Bowie, who made her his publicist in the early 70s. This is around the hunky-dory time. Uh, so that lasted a little while. And then she became a recording artist. And she put out a couple of albums in the late 70s. Bad Girl, which is excellent, came out in 1978. And then the pretty good follow-up album, Venus Divinal, came out in 1979. This song you're listening to right here is called Little Red Rooster. It's about Bowie, red hair, Little Red Rooster. Um, And it came out on that first album, Bad Girl. So good. You can buy both albums on one CD. I did this about a year and a half ago, and I love it. It is great. Uh, Anyway, she wrote a book about all of this. It's called Lick Me. And uh, if you want to find it on Kindle, it's free. In fact, the Audible version is free. So there is no reason why you shouldn't check out Cherry Vanilla's book. Now, like the book, this conversation, just as a forewarning, uh, is a little explicit. I would say it's not graphic, but it is candid. We talk candidly about sex. I was trying to have... A very, um, a very intellectual conversation about sexual politics and morality. I'm probably not the best person to have that kind of conversation, but that's what I was sort of shooting for. And so I'm really grateful that she chatted with me about that. Also, guess who her backing band was on her first European tour in 1977? It was the police. This was a pre-fame police. In fact, Andy Summers wasn't even in the band yet. It was Sting, Stewart, and Henry Padovani. They were her they were her band in Europe in the late 70s before they became the police. Can you believe that? So we discuss all of this stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. It's a blast. Check out her music. It's really, really good. She called me from her home in Palm Springs. So I, I usually kick these things off with a little story of how I discovered the person that I'm talking to. And yours is very specific because I've always heard the name. I'm a huge David Bowie fan, and so we're going to talk about him. So I've okay. always heard the name Cherry Vanilla in, you know, in reading stories or books about Bowie and everything. But when I got turned on to you as a musician was about a year and a half ago when I interviewed Hilly Michaels for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's a character. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And so I, um, I was researching Hilly to interview him, and he had you had come up, and uh, so I sought out your albums, and I bought the CD immediately with the, with the two albums in one, you know, Bad Girl oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Venus Divinal, and uh-huh. um, I loved it. And so I've been oh. listening to that for like an, for like a year and a half. Well, and then, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love it. And then about two weeks ago, I'm watching the Beside Bowie documentary on Mick Ronson. Oh, right. And you're in there. And I thought, right. you know, I've always thought about seeing if Cherry would talk to me. And watching you on the screen there, I thought, what am I waiting for? So I 
emailed you right then and there, and you emailed back before the movie, I think, was even over, and said, yeah, let's do it. And then I saw your book, and so I hurried, and the book, thankfully, for anyone listening, was free, as was the audible of the book. And so I listened to it uh, and just finished it last night. So, yeah, so I feel like I've been just completely consuming cherry vanilla for the last, like, year and a half. As you should. Some people show up to interview you or something and they haven't read anything. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I yeah. like pre- I, people who are prepared. Sure. <laughs> I try not to be that guy. I will admit, though, because you've done so many things, and I'm imagining, because this is primarily a, a music-related podcast, that people who are unfamiliar with your music career might think, well, I wonder what John's talking to Cherry Vanilla about. And there are so many things in your career to touch on, it's almost kind of overwhelming. But the one thing I want to start with that's kind of most interesting to me is you grow up in Queens and you get to know Don Amici's family and that sort of becomes the first exposure, I guess, to show business and kind of glamorous living and sort of forms your idea that or a, a, a desire within you to kind of shoot for that or achieve for that. Is that right? Well, that and the fact that my mother was a telephone operator at the Copacabana. Mm. So between those two things of seeing the nightlife in Manhattan and staying with the Amici's and knowing their children and stuff, uh, yeah, because we grew up kind of poor. I mean, I didn't know I was poor as a kid. Mm -hmm. I thought we were middle class, but we were poor. And my father worked for the sanitation department. So um, we always had everything we wanted. I had a good childhood, uh, but it was Queens. It wasn't Manhattan, which meant it was a whole other world in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, my family was not really involved in show business except for those facts that my sister was the governess for Don Amici's two children mm-hmm. and my mother worked at the Copa. So, yeah, once my eyes were open to that world, I was like, well, I can't wait to get out of Queens, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that was that was the spark that set it all off, yeah, yeah. Now, you said, and I'm going to be asking you for stories on all the famous people that you, you know, name-dropped in your book, but tell us a little bit about Don, because in the book, you had very complimentary things to say. It sounded like he was a really stand-up guy, and he and his wife had a great family and relationship and tried to keep it all very solid. Is that right? He was a total gentleman, total. And uh, he had four sons that were natural-born, and he had two daughters who were hmm. adopted. And um, his wife, Honora, I mean, my sister was a governess for the two girls, and I was the same age as them, and so I was always going into Manhattan, hanging out with them, and they always invited me to stay over for dinner and stay over, and they lived in the Hotel Croydon. He was, my father was gruff and rough and kind of Archie mm-hmm. Bunker-like, where mm-hmm. Don Amici was very refined, and he always smelled beautiful, and mm-hmm. he was always dressed impeccably, and it was a more formal, not that they were formal, they were very down-to-earth, mm-hmm. but it was a more rich, ritzy kind of life than I was sure. used to, and he, and he was very, very sweet and kind man, and so yeah, the whole family was, yeah, the boys Good. too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, switching, going to completely the other kind of side of the spectrum. How, when did you first, because you're considered a very famous groupie, when did your 
attraction to showbiz start to sort of morph or show itself in a desire to be so close to it that you that the groupy lifestyle felt like the right way to the thing you wanted most well you know i was like 17 in 1961 i turned 17 so i was ripe for the birth of rock and roll and mm. just the right age for it all so naturally my showbiz love uh, found its outlet in rhythm and blues music the 1950s music I loved rhythm and blues mm -hmm. and that was sort of the beginning of rock and roll and then it went right into Beatles and Rolling Stones and all that and I was just at the perfect age I was in my 20s in the 1960s you know mm -hmm. so it, naturally the part of show business I was attracted to was rock and roll and yeah. once I was attracted to that and also my sex sexuality was peaking and we now had the pill and women's mm -hmm. liberation and you didn't have to be a whore to say you wanted to have sex so who did you want to have sex with naturally mm -hmm. the, the the musicians you were uh adoring you know sure. listening to so that's how yeah. that all started yeah uh -huh. okay when um the, it seems like from the book the first big name that you sort of land is uh burton cummings from the guess who that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Good old Burton Cummings. He was actually a sweetheart of a guy. Was sweetheart he? Sweetheart of a guy. Oh, yeah, he was very sweet. Okay. And, uh, I mean, he went from one girl to another. I was no mm -hmm. more important to him than any of the other girls, probably, although I thought I was for a minute. Right. But right. He, so he he played the role, but he was very sweet and kind and nice. So, And I still think he has one of the loveliest voices, you know. He really yeah. loves you voice yeah yeah what's the okay so i'm just gonna i mean you seem like an open person and i've never been in a position where i can have these kind of conversations with somebody so forgive oh. me if i go over if i cross some line here okay you tell okay. me all right okay but what are the first experiences like does it does it take you a few of these guys to figure out what the dynamic is of this situation for instance the first time you sleep with burton cummings do you think his, you're his girlfriend? Do you think you're going to be his the girl at this particular port? Or And does it take you a while to figure out, no, he's doing this once and then it's over? How long does it take you to figure out the dynamic? Well, you have to kind of enter it knowing that it might just be the one-night stand for you the same as it is for him. So you have to enter it knowing, hey, I'm getting my shot at having sex with a guy I admire Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to take it no matter what and see what, where it goes. Then by sort of the second time when they come to town and they call you, that's mm -hmm. when your hopes go up. <laughs> mm, okay. But maybe maybe it wasn't just a one-night stand. Maybe he's going to call you every time he comes to town and stuff. But then after the third time when he winds up going home with some other girl from the party mm -hmm. rather than you, then you realize, okay, <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a two-night stand, you know what I mean? Okay. So uh, you, you you just you have to be as liberal and open about the whole thing as they are and realize sure. that they're rock stars and they can have all the girls they want. So yeah. they want variety, you know, it's part of it. And, yeah. Um, 
So yeah. and, and okay. in a way, you want variety too. I mean, in a way, yeah. though I say I wanted to fall in love with this one and that one, so, but in a way, I wanted to be very free in those days myself. You know, so yeah. I wasn't tied to Burton Cummings if John Hammond came along or right. you know, somebody Chris Christopherson. Or Chris Christopherson. So you know, I guess I wanted to be as free as they did, and you, it was just a, it, it was such a different, different time. You know, it was yeah. the focus of my whole generation was music, not technology yet, just music, and right. And the focus, you know, the sex symbol of our time, the male sex symbol, and most of them were male, were rock stars. Yeah. That's changed over time, but that was that was it, and. Also, it was kind of, um, I don't know if you'd say ego or achievement thing. Like, mm. if you could get to these guys who everybody in the world seemed to want to get to, then wowie for you. How'd you do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, that element. Okay. Do you, um, and this might be super personal, I don't know. Again, I'm just going to ask what comes to mind, and you tell me if I go over some line or whatever. Do you have a sense what was special about you specifically either as a sexual partner or as a social partner for the night that caused these guys to come back to you or to make you this famous groupie was it were you particularly good at oral sex were you particularly good at letting them cry on your shoulder were you particularly good at making them feel good about themselves as a rock star was it all of those things well I loved music, number one, and they could tell that. I knew a bit mm. about music. I had a pretty good ear for music. I was kind of cute. I mean, cuter than mm -hmm. I realized at the time. When I look back sure. at the pictures, I think, oh, you were pretty cute. No kidding. Um, and um, I had, I believe, in a way, I wasn't sleazy. Um, I still had that Irish Catholic good girl thing about me in spite of the fact that I was going to go home and sleep with the guy. Uh, but I didn't come on, you know, really sleazy. And I took it lighthearted, like, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I would come right out and ask them, hey, you want to go back to, you know, my place or mm -hmm. your hotel or something? I wasn't shy about um, mm. asking them. As far as what I did sexually, I'm not telling you that. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Okay. But, That's fine. But, um, but, you know, nothing tremendously out of the ordinary. Okay. It was just, you know, sure. rock and roll sex yeah. days and uh, just getting pot, smoking pot and getting high and taking sure. LSD. And I think that's the other thing. I was kind of psychedelic because I was on acid a lot. And mm. I think when you're on acid, you can kind of get what you want, you know, because mm -hmm. you, you kind of you're kind of putting out some kind of magic uh, electrical vibration. And mm -hmm. I felt a lot of the times the guys just kind of were attracted to me because I was putting out such a buzz of yeah. being so high, you know? Probably. One of the things that I, that struck me, and I've always known this, but um, it, I was reminded even more so, is just how much power women have in a sexual relationship especially when it when it's of people who aren't already married. You know, like if I have a crush on some girl, she's not going to get with me unless she wants to. I don't really have the say unless I force myself. Well, but I don't really I'll have the say on that. I'll tell you another side of that as a woman looking at guys. Uh-huh. 
a woman, in order to have sex with a guy, this is, I'm, okay, I'm making a generalization here, so it's mm-hmm. not for every woman, but a woman, in order to have sex with a guy, has to kind of love something about them, something. Mm-hmm. Either they're mm-hmm. adorable, cute, funny, smart, nerdy, something mm-hmm. that you like, something that you love about them, um, athletic. To, 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 to have sex with them, you're making love to them. Where I've heard guys say, oh, man, that bitch, I fuck the shit out of that bitch. Mm-hmm. I hate that bitch. Mm-hmm. A guy can fuck a woman because he hates her. Mm. And I don't think women fuck guys because they hate them, not most yeah. women. Yeah, So I okay. think there's a difference in that, too, looking at it from the other side. But, you know, like, for instance, there aren't a lot of male roadies because that um, that sort of dynamic doesn't, doesn't no, you exist mean in reverse. There are, there are or, I'm sorry, yeah, groupies. Yeah, sorry, yeah, groupies. Yeah, well, I no, had a you know, few. I had a few. Did you? Yeah. So there were just men that were just there, just like you, there to be subservient to you and your every need, whether they be sexual or in a place to crash or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I I usually had a steady boyfriend. I was usually having sex with the lead guitarist or the, yeah. somebody in the band. That was just convenient, and I wasn't going to spread it around. But I had guys, young ones, who'd come and do you know, offer to do pretty much anything I wanted. And, you know, although it's not sex these days, I still have a couple of very young fans Mm. who just adore, like, taking me out to dinner or, you know, seeing me when I'm in New York, having a coffee with me. or Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I I wouldn't exactly say they're groupies, but male fans. And uh, I think there are a few. But, you know, the whole... That whole scene is so different now, and the whole mm. emphasis is not even music anymore. It's politics now. Thank God yeah. kids are getting into politics. Maybe we'll yeah. make some changes. So Boy, it went through so. technology and now politics, and, you know, yeah. it's a different... I don't think there are as many female groupies around, and it's not easy to get backstage anymore. Or mm. Not that it was ever easy, easy, but the security got ever more so. I mean, after mm-hmm. John Lennon got shot and... You know, some things happened. Security got very tight, and it's not easy to just go meet a rock star anymore. It, it seemed like when you uh, when you had your personal sexual awakening, there was just no stopping you, and that's what powered you, empowered you to go after all of these different aspects of show business that you did. It seemed like sex, or the desire for sex, or the awakening of sex, or the realization of your own sexuality and that's that was the motor that seemed to be kind of pushing you into marketing or advertising or getting to know david bowie or your own rock and roll career or whatever well i call it demystifying i always wanted to demystify things like what must it feel like to be a radio TV producer? What must it Uh, feel like to travel on an expense account for an ad agency? What must it feel like to be a PR person? What must it feel like to stand up in front of a rock band on stage? What must it feel like to be a groupie? So I was always demystifying. I always wanted to see what it felt like to do all different aspects, especially if it had anything to do with showbiz. On uh-huh. any side of it, I mean, what it felt like to, you know, work in a management office, you know, mm. be at a record company meeting, all that stuff. Um, it all intrigued me, and I like to demystify it. And I saw it all, I suppose at the very base of things, I always saw myself as a 
creator of my own roles mm. and an actress okay. acting out. So I, I kind of, you know, for instance, when I was David Bowie's PR lady, I wore, you know, 1940s and 50s dresses and heels. You know, I, I, I wore the costumes for mm. the part. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I saw it as a, like an acting, like a, like living out a play, like life. I still see life like a, like a play. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm living out... Uh, I'm writing my own roles and living them out, you know, and dressing for yeah. them. And so, um, yeah, I think that, I, I mean, yeah, there's a sexuality that pushes you. I mean, especially like I was always in men's world. I mean, in yeah. advertising, I was one of the youngest female uh, radio producer casting directors ever. And mm-hmm. uh, there just weren't many females who did that stuff. Same with everything I did. It was mm-hmm. breaking into a male world. And I guess that has a certain sexuality behind it, especially mm. if you're not afraid to use your sexuality. Yeah, I wasn't, probably true. I wasn't yeah. afraid to use anything at my disposal, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, you, you did, you've done so many different things. Was there one driving ambition? Was the plan... At a, at one point, I want to be a rock star, and I'll do what I have to do to become a rock star. Or was it like you were saying, there are so many things that interest me. As long as I'm in show business somewhere, I'm going to go about kind of demystifying different aspects of it just to see if I can. Definitely, I wanted to do a million things. But at one point, I had hoped that I'd get one hit song that would give mm. me some kind of royalties for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, right. Because oh, I, I had heard of people you know, in the 50s and 60s, and you say, well, how is that person still living? And they go, well, they had this hit song back, you know, blah, 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 and they get royalties. So it was always in my head, if I just got one hit song and I had royalties, then I could do a lot of things in life I wanted to do, and I'd always have that little bit of money coming in. So, But mostly I wanted to try a million things. I wanted to try acting, writing. And I think the ultimate thing that I hoped to be when I because I knew that rock star has a shelf life performer has a shelf life maybe not anymore god bless some of my friends are out there doing it in their 70s but I wouldn't want to be doing it in my 70s and I always hoped that I had the ability most of all to be a writer because I thought even when I'm old and fat and gray or whatever I am I can Mm -hmm. always do writing and uh, so Mm -hmm. I, I had hoped always that for that and as it turns out that's like the last thing i'm sort of being in my life <laughs> yeah. as a writer yeah yeah okay yeah. um all right well before we go deep on bowie i want to we sh- we got to talk about Andy warhol and you becoming an actress in that play pork so tell us tell the story of how this happened and i want to know like how much interaction you actually had with Andy warhol okay i never had a lot of interaction with andy here's the deal Andy was always around Max's Kansas City, so was I, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'd sit at his table, but not often. I'd be at the next table or two tables over or whatever, but mm-hmm. we were always around each other, but not have much to say to each other or blah, blah, blah. Okay, so then Andy, they did Andy's play Pork in New York. I was not in it in New York. I don't even know where I was living at that particular moment, but... I just had nothing to do with pork in New York. Okay. But I was doing these Lower East Side plays, Theater of the Ridiculous, with this director, Tony Ingrassio, who was directing Andy's play Pork. So 
a producer came along and wanted to take Pork to London to the Roundhouse Theater. And Andy said, fine, but he didn't like the girl who was playing Pork. Mm. So he wanted Tony to find somebody else to do that role. And Andy had seen me perform in one other Ingrassia play in the East Village, and he said, what about that girl? And so Tony Ingrassia brought me up to the factory to audition for Andy. Now, I was already in Actors' Equity and everything, so I was not like the people he put in his movies where he paid their rent that month or gave mm. them 50 bucks or something, and then they were dependent on him and thought they were going to be in his next movie and his next one. I was already... Like, if he was going to say okay to me, which he did, I auditioned for him at the factory, and he gave me the part. But I had to get a regular actor's equity. I had a contract and a regular salary and all that. We all did. So it was Mm -hmm. a much more sort of, once I got involved with Andy, it was much more on a professional basis. And then um, when when we did Pork in London, Andy came over for a few days and I did some press conferences with him and he came to the opening night and the party and all that and we hung out a little bit and then after that when I would see Andy back in New York at parties and everything he would always like make jokes with me like he always Mm. say something sexual like if there was a cute young boy at a gallery opening Mm -hmm. or something he'd always say like go over and see if that boy has a big penis I hear he has a big penis come back and tell me you know and I go up and go over and say to the boy oh Andy says you have a big penis do you you know and then I go back and tell Andy whatever you know just playful silly stuff like that and so that was my relationship with him and it didn't go much deeper or much further Mm. than that really you know Okay. So, um, yeah, and that's, yeah, I answered both your questions there. Okay, yeah. Now, um, we should just, for anyone who's not familiar with Pork, we should establish that the play was based on conversations that he and... Um, Bridget who, Berlin, a.k.a. Bridget Polk. Yes. Therefore, Pork. have on the phone, right? They would have on the phone. It was the early days where you put that little suction thing on your phone and recorded. Yeah. Okay. And um, they, so the play was based on transcripts from their phone calls together. Right. right. Okay. Uh, Patty Hackett at the factory transcribed Bridget Berlin's and and Andy Warhol's phone tapes, and then Tony Ingrassia, the director, edited them down into the play. Pork. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And so you have been in his in the factory. What What was that like? Uh, you know, it was the one on Union Square where you took the elevator up. Now, it, it was all silver still and all that, but they uh-huh. were a little more cautious, like the elevator opened right into it and everything. Uh, but this was after he had gotten shot, so mm-hmm. um, they were a little bit cautious when you came up more so. I was there another time just to see a screening of a movie. Joe D'Alessandro was was yeah. running the projector. And... Um, but that's the only time. And there was the big stuffed dog, of course, which was horrible, but big taxidermy dog. Okay. And, you know, Andy was lovely. He was lovely on the audition. Good. He asked me to sing a hymn from Catholic school, and I did. And <laughs> we talked about advertising. He loved advertising. He loved TV. Yeah, television. I bet. I bet. So did, you, um, did you ever have sex with Joe? No, no. Oh, really? Hard- yeah, no, I hardly knew Joe. No. Oh, I would have thought that would have been a 
a match. She was oh, apparently he was very amazing. beautiful. Very beautiful. Yeah. I had sex with Eric Emerson, uh, a oh. factory guy, a yeah. gorgeous little guy. A lot of times, Eric, okay. Eric Erickson and I. But no, most of the other factory guys I didn't know. Just okay. Eric. One thing I did think, and this is, I thought was interesting, is how um, even though there were you were surrounded by so many gay guys, you guys would still have sex with each other. It was just kind of a fluid thing sometimes, like, well, we're in the mood, we're here, let's test this well, out. You know, Joel Schumacher, psych- for instance. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> on, you know? on psychedelics or on uh, quaaludes, you know, people became very Anything goes. open sexually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Now, Joel was an interesting thing because the reason I had sex with Joel, I'd known Joan, Joel all those years. We took lots of acid together and we slept in the same bed together. We never really had sex. Uh-huh. And then... Years later, he was going to a psychiatrist in Hollywood, and it was the same psychiatrist that, um, what's his name? He did Psycho, the actor. Oh, yeah, Anthony Perkins. A same psychiatrist, and Anthony Perkins wanted to be straight because he wanted to have a wife and family, which he did. Mm -hmm. And so he went to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist helped him with that, and he married uh, 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 Barry Berenson. And mm-hmm. they had children, and, you know, it was great for his life. So Joel went to the same psychiatrist, so I guess she at one point suggested he try it. <laughs> so <laughs> he tried it with me, which was a yeah. complete surprise, uh-huh. and yet he went back to being gay, so I guess I wasn't that Yeah, effective. that's not a word. Anyway. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So let's get to Bowie. So Bowie, now do you you become acquainted with Bowie because he sees you in Pork, correct? Yes. Uh, we, I first met him because I went to see him with Jane County and Lee Childers at the Country Club in London. He was performing, and with um, Mick Ronson and with um, oh, what's his name on on piano? Um, oh. Um. God. Oh, Mike Garson. No, no, no. This was oh. way before Mike Garson. This was in '71. Oh, um, not a, not Rick Wakeman. Rick Wakeman on piano and yeah, Mick okay. Ronson on guitar and Bowie, and they were playing in a little club. And we went out to see them, and we introduced ourselves, and we became friends. Went to, out to a disco with them, and all that kind of stuff. And then he came to see Pork. And then we started going over their house for tea and all that kind of stuff. And we all became friends while we were in London doing pork. And then Tony um, DeFries hired Tony Zanetta to head up Main Man. Tony hired me and Lee. And we established Main Man in New York for when Bowie was ready to tour. So right. And he, when you, this was around the time of the recording of Hunky Dory, right? Yeah, when we met him in 71 in London, I think he it was just about the same time he was recording Hunky Dory, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and thing... when he came over in 72, I think that was, he had just done Ziggy Stardust just before that. Came right, over in okay. September 72, yeah. And um, what were some of your, I mean, I read about them in the book. For anyone, But for anyone who hasn't read the book, which will be most of these people, what were some of your responsibilities as his PR person? Well, of course, at the beginning, I did everything. See, I came from a corporate background, having spent like a good solid eight years in advertising. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had a kind of organizational skills that 
um, Tony Zanetta and Lee Childers and even Tony DeFries kind of didn't have. I knew how to organize an office. So when when I was first hired, that's what I did. I got the file cabinets, the telephones, the uh, telex machines, mm. uh, set up charge accounts. I, I organized an office. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you know, if 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 somebody needed their shirt ironed, I ironed their shirt. I did everything, and then eventually, I started hiring people to help, like Dory Weiner and stuff. And I kind of, because I had a sort of natural ability to call people in the press to cold call them, or if people called us to chat them up, um, uh-huh. I sort of. By fault, by default, became the PR lady because Tony DeFries wasn't going to let David Bowie speak to anybody, so I had to speak for him. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was all a ruse in a way because he sure. was going to let the New York Times or the LA Times, you know, there were going to be certain people who were going to be allowed to talk to Bowie. But we put on this thing that he was, you know, unattainable, and uh, you talked to me first. And I made up story. I didn't even know half of Bowie's history because it was all unfolding so fast. Mm. And in those days, we didn't have the Internet to do research. So I was right. making up things that I didn't even know about <laughs> David Bowie. And um, and then it just grew from there. As Main Man grew, then I just took over more and more of just the PR duties, and that's how that came about. So you had other responsibilities besides just Bowie? You had, Nick um, Ronson, no. Dana Gillespie, okay. Kenta yeah. Yamamoto, Iggy Pop, um, Mata yeah. yeah. But Bowie was our main, you know, he was the one that was on the rise, you know, on mm-hmm. the big rise, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now we have to talk about you having sex with Bowie. How many times did you have sex with Bowie? Oh, not many. Four yeah. Five. Yeah. Okay. Not many. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, you, the way you write about it in the book, it sounded like it was amazing. Well, he was a great lover in the fact that he really showered you with affection. It wasn't just sex. I mean, uh, he was very. He was very when it, you know. Sometimes I think he was just a great actor. But that's okay. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Because he really made you believe that he was like, you know, totally into it. And he was, you know, uh, as rough as you wanted it to be and as tender mm-hmm. as you wanted it to be. So he was really what I would consider a really great lover, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So that was always fun. Um, okay. And, uh, and, um, now, did he have spiky red hair when you had sex with him? Yeah. He did. Yeah, he did, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Because um, this may sound like a weird question, but me being the Bowie fan that I am, you know, the the cover of uh, Hunky Dory, he still has the long kind of, you know, dishwater blonde hair or whatever. Yeah, he had that when I met him, but okay. I didn't have sex with him in those days. I didn't have okay. sex with him until I worked for him Okay. on okay. the first tour in uh, Boston. And then a couple of times after that, when I didn't work for him, um, he would come by my apartment. And, and and his hair do changed over those times. He was blonde sure. sometimes and stuff. But at the first time, yes, he was in full Ziggy. He even had some of his makeup still on, you know. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. And um, and he's married to Angie Bowie, who right. is, is mostly a divisive character. I mean, not everybody has really great things to say about her, but you said you had, you loved her. 
and it didn't seem to bother anyone that everyone is so, you know, out and open with their sexuality, even though they're married. Well, once I got to know Angie, and she let it be known that she didn't care who had sex with David because mm. she was going to have sex with who she wanted to, then yeah. um, then I didn't feel any guilt having sex with her husband. And um, and she, um, I tell you, Angie, I, I loved her, and, and sometimes she could drive me crazy because mm-hmm. Angie is the kind of person, she's very smart, and she's very enthusiastic, and she can get you all energized and riled up about some project she has going, mm-hmm. some idea, some scheme, and she can take a lot of your energy, and then suddenly she's she's off that project. She's on to yeah. something else, and you're left there Got with, it. like, you just put out a lot of energy and a lot of stuff, and yeah. energy's moved on. So after a while, you get to know, okay, I really dig Angie, but it only goes so far what she yeah. gets me roped into. <laughs> I can see that. I know people like that, sure. Yeah. And um, And you did not have sex with Angie. I did have sex with Angie once. Oh, yeah. you did? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I talk okay. about it in the book. I thought you did. I couldn't remember. Okay. Yeah. Now, but uh, bisexuality was not really your thing overall. That's kind of what you determined, correct? What? Girls? Yeah. Being, yeah. But, yeah I mean, no, I no. I played around I, a little I, bit, but it was no, never your No, part. no, no. I... I I really was not into being a lesbian at all. Okay, yeah. <laughs> not at all. But, you know, I had to try everything, demystify. Sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think people like Bowie, do you think the sex aspect or the sexual aspect of their, you know, behind-the-scenes life, do you think that that part was necessary for them to be the artists that they became? Do you think if, oh, yeah. if Angie and David had had some kind of conventional marriage, do you think he still would have been David Bowie? Well, first of all, I never could see him having a conventional marriage. Yeah, okay. When he was when he was older, he he did with Iman, yeah. but um, in those days, you know, nobody was having a conventional marriage. Not okay. in our group of friends. Um, yeah. But you know, a sexual drive is. Like you said before, you, you you thought my own sexual drive was driving me to try to prove myself in a lot of ways, and mm. um, I certainly think that's that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, when you're on stage, I mean, you listen to some guitar solos or sitar mm. pieces, or uh, it's like they're having sex and coming to a climax. You mm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Time, or drum solo, you know. Those things are so sexually driven, you know. Music mm-hmm. is sexually driven, so yeah, I think his he had a big sex drive, and uh, I think that that does drive you to accomplish a lot of other things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, now I want to ask you about Tony DeFreeze because um, he's another kind of divisive character in all this. I think because the um, you know there's a question out there whether he was good or bad. For David and his career, how do you? Well, what's your take? I can tell you have a you have an opinion. David Bowie would have never happened without Tony. Really? Yeah. No. So I even though Tony so. kind of stepped in it, on I mean, money it, and it all that might, stuff, it might have happened by chance. 
But don't forget, David already had out a few albums that weren't hits. True. He wasn't a big star uh, when Tony took over. These days, David wouldn't even get that chance. These days, yeah. if you don't have a hit right off, you don't. They, record companies don't develop artists anymore. So Tony came along to pick up this guy, singer-songwriter, who had like you know three or four albums that didn't really sell much. Mm -hmm. and I don't even think were distributed in America. Yeah. And um, so, and Tony, Tony was a brilliant ringmaster. And he was able, I mean, I don't think David Bowie would have happened with all of us either. It was just, just like the Beatles, it was magical chemistry that they all came together and they came together, mm -hmm. you know, with the producer and manager, they came together with Brian Epstein and all of that. But same with Tony and Main Man and mm. Pork people. The thing yeah. is, we were a wild bunch of actors and writers and creative people and used to just putting on shows all the time and mm -hmm. for no money and, you know, um, creating a sensation, being outrageous. And Tony came along, DeFries, and he was able to kind of harness us to kind of mm -hmm. let us go wild with our ideas and give us all this sort of power and to tell the record company what we wanted and all this kind of stuff when he knew we were like didn't even know what we were doing we we didn't yeah. we weren't professionals we were making it up as we went along but he had the confidence to know that that was what was needed to make a rock star at that moment it was something outrageous not only about the rock star but the whole management, the whole main man story, it's one of the most interesting stories in rock and roll is mm -hmm. the main man story because don't forget, most artists come along and they either get picked up by some big to do at a record company or some big to do manager and who already has some stars and then they pick this one and they cultivate them and they make them a star. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case here. It wasn't yeah. the case here. It was this bunch of crazy actors being harnessed in by this uh, UK guy who was uh, some an attorney. I don't even know what kind of attorney Tony was, but uh, who never had managed a rock star in his life. We never had. We never PR'd a rock star. We ne mm. and it was it was the most interesting story to take all these elements and somehow put them all together and make this rock star. So yeah. Huh. yeah. I think okay. without Tony, I think it was just a magical moment of certain people all coming together. And of course, it also wouldn't have happened if Bowie wasn't as talented as he was. Cause he okay. Was, yeah. We all knew it. We all believed in it, and uh, he really had the goods. So. Yeah. You know. Okay. Did you ever have sex with Iggy Pop? No. Oh. No, Bummer. I wasn't really a fan. I was a fan of Iggy when he was like 15. And then uh, when Iggy was with Main Man, he was a pain in the neck for me in a way because I had to be in charge of sending money out to Lee Childers was living with him. And I knew secrets. I knew that Iggy was spending the money on junk and mm. you know heroin. And, he, and then I had to tell Tony DeFries and, you know, Iggy was a problem for me later on, so I wasn't mm. that into him, you know, because okay. he wasn't 
he wasn't such a good boy to manage, you know, and uh Yeah. Yeah, so huh. anyway. Uh, and it didn't sound like you ever hooked up with Mick Ronson either, even though you kind of oh, wanted to. Oh, I wish I had. Really? <laughs> well, I, when I first met them, I was just mad for Mick. I, Mick was one of the kindest, sweetest guys I ever, ever knew, ever. But yeah. I scared the pants off him. I was way too aggressive. And really? Really? Yeah, he was very shy when I first met him. And then he hooked up with Susie. Ronson and and I uh-huh. wouldn't come. I wouldn't. I I, okay. I wouldn't go near I, uh, her boyfriend. You know they were really in love. And uh, but I adored okay. Mick Ronson. I loved him. He was what a sweetheart and what yeah. a talent. What an amazing yeah. talent. I mean, he was really. Yeah. So it's a shame he had to leave us so early. Honestly. No kidding. What about Mick Jagger? Did you ever? Didn't sound like you ever hooked up with him either. No, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't really hook up with that many guys, to tell you the truth. Okay. But I knew Mick because he hung out with Bowie during a period when I was occasionally having sex yeah. with Bowie, and when Bowie was just kind of hanging out at my apartment a lot. So I hung out with Mick a bit, and I Mick is a doll. I adore Mick. Really, he's really. Oh, yeah, good. He's a doll. He's a doll. And Mick was, you know, people have said Mick was cheap, but whenever I was around him, it was always Mick who picked up the check, not Bowie. Oh, interesting. I I, I always respected Mick for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Mick, you know, what's so sweet about Mick is, you know, like running, you wouldn't see Mick for 20 years, and then you run into him, and he'd be just as sweet. And, Mm. you know, some guys you run into after a long time, and they're kind of like they didn't really know you, you know. Yeah. Uh, that that begs the question: Did you stay in touch with David after all of this? Um, not in a way. I did like when the uh, Ziggy Stardust, the um, those those Mirabel Diary things came out in uh, French and in Italian in book form, and I had to. The the, the publishing companies were just going to go ahead and publish what Bowie wrote about it on his website, and I said, "You can't do that. We have to get his permission." So I got in touch with Bill Zisblatt, his lawyer in in those days, and he gave me permission right away and stuff. But I wasn't in touch. See, what happened with Bowie was there were things that, you know, when new entourages take over, they try to badmouth the old ones and push them out of the way. Yeah. And there, there were people who came into Bowie's life after I didn't work for him anymore, and then they kind of badmouth you. And then people... Unscrupulous. Well, I wouldn't say unscrupulous, but you know, there are people who wrote quotes that said I said, and I didn't say the quote that way. Mm. I said maybe something like it, but they made it sound sleazier than it was. I mean, I think so. No, I didn't really stay in touch with him personally over the uh, over the later years. No, okay. for a while I did in in through the you know seventies and stuff, but after a while, no, no. Okay. So, um, did um, did you guys do a lot of drugs together? Now, Bowie back then, for, first of all, 72, 73, 74, I never noticed Bowie doing many drugs at all back in those days. Really? I, mean, I was doing a lot of drugs. Yeah. And he might have been taking a little upper pill here and there or having a glass of wine, but I never noticed him doing lots of drugs back then. Maybe he was, but it's very subtle. But later on, when I didn't work for him anymore, and he used to come hang out with me at my Chelsea loft, 
then he was doing tons of cocaine. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't really into cocaine all that much. I was more a marijuana LSD girl. Okay. So I never really did. And, and Bowie was cheap with his cocaine. He didn't offer it to other people. Oh, interesting. Even if he was snorting it in your house. Uh, so uh, I often went out and scored it for him and brought it to him, and he'd sit there and do it and not offer you any. Oh, no I way. Guess I, could, I guess I could have said, hey, give me a line, but I yeah, didn't. Yeah, no kidding. I, I didn't care. What a bum. I, was, uh, uh, I found yeah, an interview ahead. on YouTube tonight or, or earlier today that was apparently really rare, and it's you interviewing him in, like, the early 70s. I think you may have even posted it on there. And um, in the in, in the interview, you're talking about how, oh, I know, David, that you're not really in the drugs and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, boy, this what a snow job. Because either he hadn't gotten there yet or he was lying like crazy because we know that no, the drug I, I never issue knew was right around the corner. Never knew him or Angie to be into drugs in the early days. Huh. You know, they talked about a little speed pill now and then or something, but that was the band. I never even knew if yeah. Bowie did that, you know. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, until the cocaine thing. And then, of course, you know, it was completely the opposite. Once he started doing the coke, he was like the biggest cokehead I ever met. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah right. Unbelievable. Right. Okay. Um, okay, last Bowie question, and then we can move along. Were you ever in the room... During the creation of a song, we would know. Yeah, Drive-In Saturday. Really? Yeah, he did that at the RCA Studios in New York, and I was there for that. Let me put my arms around your head. Gee, it's hot. Let's go to bed. Don't forget to turn on the light. Don't laugh, babe. It'll be all right. Pour me out another phone I'll ring and see if your friends are home Perhaps the strange ones in the dome Can lend us a book we can read up alone And try to get it on like once before When people stare in Jagger's eyes and score Like the video films we saw I love that song, so that one's yeah, in my too. mind the most. And I wasn't okay. there for many recording sessions. Um, there was something we did at Electric Lady once, but I forget what that was. Oh, huh. okay. But um, I remember driving Saturdays at the RCA recording studio. Okay, yeah. Yeah. cool. All right. Well, I still, it's bugging me because I know that I thought of a really good question a minute ago, and I can't remember what it is. If I think about it, we'll go back to it. But otherwise... All right. Let's move past it. So eventually you working for Main Man comes to an end, but you start to launch your own career, first I guess as a poet, and then you decide that you can be a rock star too, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I um, I was 
I put out a little book of poetry, and um, I started doing poetry readings in like sort of nightclub cabarets, and it was really like a comedy act done in poetry. Ah, uh, got it. Poems okay. were all comedic, and a lot of them were based on uh, the music business and characters in the music business and stuff like that. It was kind mm-hmm. of a backstage look at the music business done in poetry and comedy. And then musicians came along who I knew and said, oh, I'll just play some avant-garde stuff on the piano for you. And then somebody else said, oh, I'll do some little bongos. And then one place that I wanted to play Reno Sweeney's, that guy said I needed a few songs because it was mm-hmm. a cabaret. So I found this young guy who wrote like three songs for me. I wrote the lyrics and they were comedic songs. And uh, so everything was a comedy act at the beginning and even with the music and everything. And then I was adding more and more songs and they were kind of like cabaret songs. And then Mm. as long as I was doing writing songs, I figured, well, I like rock and roll. I should be writing rock and roll songs. So then I started put getting rock and roll musicians yeah. and doing rock and roll songs but we never had any money so I was always musicians were coming and going and you just get a musician to learn the songs and then somebody mm-hmm. else would pay them more money because I knew all these musicians who'd come to my gig who would take them away and hire them you know yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and then I'd have to have auditions and rent a sound studio, rehearsal studio and audition, and that would take up any money you were going to make at the gig, and then they'd have mm-hmm. to learn the gig. And it was just endless. I I reached a point where I was calling them this week's band, Cherry Vanilla mm-hmm. this week's band, because it was like that, and it was really tough, really yeah. rough to keep it. But but uh, yeah, then and also with the writing, I, I I I really couldn't write the music. Sometimes I had a little melody in mind, but. Mostly I just wrote lyrics, so I needed somebody to write the music. And these boys were like, they all wanted to be stars, and they were all going to be, you know, uh, writers, singer-songwriters on their own, so they claimed. But I would have to push and push and push them to write music, and they Mm -hmm. never wanted to sing backup, and I really needed backup singers, and I'd say, please sing backup, and they would be like, you could hardly hear them. It was tough having a a male band and... Yeah, and they were okay. like, they treated me like I was just a novelty, and they were never really in my corner that much, to tell you the truth. It was just yeah. they used me as a stepping stone, and I had to use them too, but, you know. So yeah. that was, yeah, but then it became rock and roll. So then, all yeah. of a sudden, yeah, got, okay. got a contract, and I, there I was recording rock and roll albums. Your first album is so good, and I, um, I, I love that sound.
it reminds me of going back of that sort of glam or glitter rock of the period. It reminds me of what Bowie would have been doing around the same time, mixed with the Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack. Oh well, Andrew Lloyd, <laughs> the producer, would just adore you for saying that because really, yeah, because he really had a vision of just keeping it very simple and. Uh. Um, but just giving it a, 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 as much life as he could give it, but but yeah. keep it you know simple. And um, and I, the only thing is, if they had to tell you, and we didn't want any real tricks, but hmm. I'll tell you what, if they had had, um, you know, what do you call it, where they it can make it sound always in on the right note. I forgot hmm. they did auto tuning. Yeah, if they had auto tuning, I would have used it in a couple of places. Really? <laughs> yeah, because there's a couple of places where I'm not quite on the note because I never was a great singer. I was just sure. a, I was a good performer. I could really right. get an audience going, and I was a good performer. But when when I and also when we went in the studio, I was in shock because I had always been stoned out of my mind on pot, at least sometimes LSD, whatever singing and uh, performing and when we were over there you couldn't get pot in those days you could maybe get some hash but they mixed mm -hmm. it with tobacco and I never liked tobacco it always made me right. dizzy and sick so they'd pass these joints around that were all tobacco with hash in them and I'd have a puff just to try and get high and then I felt sick because of the mm -hmm. tobacco and then I'd have to go in and sing and hear myself like I'd never heard myself before mm -hmm. you know with these studio headphones and you're like oh my god <laughs> you mm -hmm. just freaked out right. Yeah, and uh, so it was not easy. It was not yeah. easy. But Andrew, he was a true believer, and he always just kind of backed me and said, "It doesn't matter. You just sell yeah. it with your personality." Blah 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 blah. So oh, anyway, you know, we 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 did what we did. But he was he's still one of my dear dear friends, Andrew Hoy. Good. Yeah, he he signed me to RCA. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, and you know and. Someone you mentioned in your book. While I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, you know who she reminds me of is Genya Raven. And oh, Genya was a dear friend. And I might love have Genya. Been, I, I, I actually might have made a mistake not signing with Genya because early on, early, early on, before I really even knew anything about singing, in a way, I was very raw and mm -hmm. Genya came to see me a few times, and she liked that rawness. Yeah. And she wanted to take me, and she would be in the club, like Trudy Heller's, and she'd start singing the choruses along with me from the mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. And she used to say to me, Cherry, don't worry about hitting the right notes. If I back it up, you'll be, and right. I strengthen, I double the note. It's like you're singing the right note because once somebody doubles it, it's right. And she yeah. wanted me to sign a production deal with her. And it was very early on, and I was like very nervous about signing a production deal. Oh, you mean she makes 50% of everything then? And blah, 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 blah. And I was right. scared of doing that. People would say, no, don't sign away your publishing and don't sign mm -hmm. a production deal. But in a way, I often think I would love to have heard the album I would have made with her because yeah. I adore her and I love yeah. her sound. Loved yeah. her sound. Yeah, she was I do too. Man. I had her on here about a year ago. Oh. She's so great. And, um, and I love. Does she still perform? She does. Yeah, you know. Oh uh, boy, I'd love to catch her. Regularly show. out in New York. Yeah, she's oh, so boy. great. And she and it's same similar kind of um, 
similar kind of like ambition and you know uh, life, I guess, even as you. And I was reading because I read her book too in preparation to talk to her, and and I love the two albums she put out around the same time as yours. And I, it uh, there were a lot of parallels, and so it didn't surprise me that you two had crossed paths. Oh, and you're yeah. probably right. She could have made something pretty special. Yeah. Although, having said that, I think your first album is really special. Well, so, thanks. But I, it would, you know, I've always wondered about it. I wonder if I had gotten together with Genya, you know, because, you know, but yeah, um, yeah she's she's I I I just love the toughness of her yeah. rock and roll delivery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. She's so, and I liked her as a person a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, she was Good. great. Yeah. yeah, she's great. Now, we should establish that your touring band on in the UK for this first album was The Police. Album. No, um, I yeah. They, they, they played with me you before, up in concert. Yeah, before I got the contract. When what happened oh. was Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's brother, came and saw me in a club in New York, and he said, "Look, I've got this little band my brother has in England, and I can't get them gigs because they have no publicity hook, but you have plenty of publicity hook with the Bowie and the Warhol thing. If mm-hmm. you bring your keyboard player and guitarist." I'll hook you up with them as a rhythm section, drums and, and bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Padovani was their guitarist at the time, and he he, he wasn't going to play with me. He'd play with them, and then they'd play with me. Okay. And I can book a whole tour for you guys and everything. So we were like, okay, well, let's go. And, of yeah. course, it was you know horrible. I mean, we traveled in this van with no heater, and it was yeah. breaking down. And we carried an acoustic piano with us in the van, oh, my and the piano God. was always shaking out of tune and you know it was crazy times but yeah Stuart was my drummer and Sting was my bass player Louis Lepore was the guitarist and Zecca was on the keyboards and they were my opening act and they played with me we did France and Sweden and the UK yeah yeah and then I got the RCA contract and then they they got a contract with A&M and blah 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 they went their way I went mine they became huge rich rock stars Would you have, I mean, that's my, uh, that's the natural next question. Would you have ever guessed? I mean, did you see in them um, something special? Did you think Sting would become, you know, the, the royalty um, that he is? 
here's the thing. Sting always had a huge ego, even back yeah. then. Okay. He always had a lot of confidence in himself. So mm-hmm. I kind of figured, but he wasn't really cute yet or anything. He was a little chubby, and he hadn't mm-hmm. started bleaching his hair, and they didn't have the clothes, and blah, 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 mm-hmm. You know, the beauty comes out with the success and money. Okay. And so I thought, yeah, this guy, if he gets it together, I knew he was a great bass player. Mm-hmm. And um, But their first song, see, when... When they were with me, they were still doing like, I don't want no dead-end job. I don't want no dead-end job. They were like total like punk rockers with Henry uh-huh. Padovani. So I didn't think that they had a sellable style or anything mm. special as far as the police went. Yeah. And my guys, Louie and Zeka, were always complaining that Stuart couldn't keep time. Now, Stuart That's... did waver in time, I must say. Yeah. It didn't bother me very much, but he did waver. I did have more steady drummers in my life. But anyway, okay. um, he, it, you know, my guys did that. It was just a competitive thing. It was They were competitive yeah. with them because they were the English guys. and they were. Although Stuart was actually American. But yeah. anyway, but then when they did Roxanne... They were kind of jumping on the reggae bandwagon that was hitting the UK at the time. Right, right. And Roxanne was like, I mm, that's a little hit song. But it, okay. when they first put it out, it didn't become a hit. But then they re-released it, and it did. Yeah. And uh, from then on, I knew, okay, they're establishing a style now, and they're, they're going to go places, you know. But yeah. no, at first, I, I, di- I didn't really, except I knew that Sting had the ego that is necessary to, you know, Get really okay. big, you yeah. Know? And of course, so, he does have the talent too. So sure, but you didn't see the the talent hadn't really blossomed by the time you saw. Uh, you his just talent as a his talent as a bass player, yes, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. in the songwriting yet. No, not until okay. Roxanne. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you see tensions between him and Stewart? Because that oh, is, yeah. I think, ultimately what brought them down, and a lot of it even stems from what you were saying. Um, Sting just having an issue with the way Stuart drums. He's so enthusiastic that he doesn't, he goes too fast, he doesn't keep the time very well. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I so saw you all saw the band that. members, they all fought with each other. I mean, yeah. I was, listen, to be the one female on the road with two bands in a van, mm-hmm. forget about it. You know, yeah. they're going to they're gonna be fighting over music and you know, and I was incidental. I was the ticket that got them all there, but they treated mm-hmm. me like the novelty. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. were, they were the great musicians. And why wasn't the press interviewing all of them mm-hmm. and paying attention to them and taking their picture? Why was it me? It's not easy to be the one female out with a whole bunch of male rock rock and rollers. It really yeah, isn't. I believe it. So I um, hated that part of it. I loved the part on stage, but you know that was it. Okay. Did um. Is Stuart fun to be around or annoying to be around? He's fun like, okay, I have this theory about Jimmy Fallon. Now, I know Jimmy Fallon. I've been to a lot of events with him, and we have mutual friends, and he's a doll, and I adore him. Uh But I don't love Jimmy Fallon's humor on TV, on his TV show, because I feel it's kind of like for college kids, if Mm -hmm. you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And if, if that makes sense to you, the same with Stuart. His jokes were like about dirty socks. It was like mm. I found his humor kind of, I don't know, young. Sophomore, yeah. Yeah, maybe sophomore is a good word for it. Young and 
I didn't find him personally very funny. And okay. he could be very sarcastic. Yeah. And, of course, then when they made it big, they just wrote me out of their history. And if they didn't yeah. write me out of their history, then they said things about, oh, she had big, buh, you know, and they'd go mm-hmm. dash, 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 like they mm-hmm. were going to say boobs or something. They, right. You know, they were ashamed that they ever played with me or something, you know. Uh, so, although uh, I ran into Sting a few times in the later years, and Sting would always right away say to people, if it wasn't for Cherry, we would never get our first gig. Mm. So, but publicly and in their in their bios and their books yeah. and stuff, they pretend yeah. I didn't even exist, you know. Yeah. Um, I read both of their bios a few years ago, but I didn't, it's been a while, I don't know that I even remember if you were mentioned in them or not. No, probably not. Yeah, no, probably, probably not. Okay. Not. Um, now, you were very respectable about mentioning this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, and you can defer if you want. Did you ever have sex with either of them? No, I was with Louis then, you know. Oh, that's true. And, that's right. Yeah, you were dating the guitarist. Uh, yeah, I was always with Louis during that time. So okay. But, you know, yeah. Okay. Um, now, the second album, your second album comes out, and it's uh, it's okay. It's, it's good. It's not as much fun to me as the first album. I still like it a lot. I think in the in the book you had mentioned that you were even sort of starting to lose a little steam yourself, or at least not. You weren't giving the label what they wanted. You were sort of oh, being darling. willfully rebellious. But listen, by the second album, I mean by the first album, we knew RCA was not going to was not really behind us. Our A and R guy left and went with Vangelis to Polygram, and we had no real A and R guy of our own, and. They didn't give a shit about us, and mm-hmm. um, I had an offer from CBS Records before I signed with RCA, and uh, in fact, they even gave me a little advance, which I paid them back when I signed with, uh, I paid CBS back when I signed with RCA and made the choice. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, it could have been a mistake, you know, but I wanted Andrew Hoy to produce me and blah blah, but. I'm, uh, CBS probably would have been a better choice, not such a nostalgic choice uh, as RCA at the time. Um, but in any event, um, I knew and we knew that they weren't going to do a thing for us, but I was contracted to give them a second album. So mm-hmm. I went crying to Ken Glancy, the president of RCA, crying, asking to be let off the label. Because we had still, I had no manager at the time, and we had some managers interested in managing us, Louie and me especially. And CBS was still, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And um, mm-hmm. 
uh, Robert, what's his name? Um, I, I forgot his name, Robert something, uh, New York record company. We still have interest enough af- after the fir- first album to mm. uh, to maybe sign with another label. Mm-hmm. And RCA would not let me fucking off their fucking label mm. because they knew they weren't going to do anything with us, but they didn't want to be proved wrong just in case I went with somebody sure. else and had a hit happened. and then they did you know, it's all of that mm-hmm. stupid shit and they were like it wasn't gonna cost them much to keep me for the second mm-hmm. album, so what the fuck? So we yeah. knew they weren't gonna do a thing with it. So we recorded things like the round dance which is a little hymn and a little mm-hmm. kinda half finished disco budget and blah 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 so and then of course by the time we did put that out I had become pregnant and had to have another abortion Mm -hmm. and all of that was a heartbreaking thing and Louis and I were on the rocks over that and he didn't want to be a father and and I kind of turned sour on the whole rock star thing I thought I kind of had played it out and it was time to get out well, and someone like you, whose ambitions were sort of flying in a million different directions, it's an example of what you were saying. I mean, here's one more thing. Let's demystify being a rock star. And you and, did it. And it's like, okay, I've done that. I can go do something else now. And I was already older than most when I got into that. So mm-hmm. I was already, it was like, well, you're going to be too old to do this soon. And what are you going to do? Are you ever going to have children? Are you ever going to? But, you know, I was at that point in my life where women make these decisions about, you know, what's my life going to be like and blah, blah, blah. And what am I going to do this when I'm 50, 60? And am I going to have plastic surgery and try to stay on strict diets and get squeeze into these little costumes? And I already knew that, like, no, because no matter how, what point I could have reached in 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 a career, if I did have wind up having a hit or something, it was still going to be. Uh, tour buses and uh, mm-hmm. airports and uh, I had already yeah. had so many other lives and kind of luxurious lives as well sure. as hard hard lives you know and so I was like no I think it's time to hang up the you know dancing shoes of the rock yeah. star so okay. that, that okay. was just a choice I made then and then Louis and I actually did kind of some more cabaret stuff after that and yeah. um 
and even then that kind of petered out and I just really got into writing and lived yeah. sort of writing magazine articles and stuff and whatever okay. I could write. Yeah. Now the book ends basically at this spot in your career. The epilogue sort of takes care of the last almost 30 years of your life. Um, I the, There are a couple major takeaways that I took from the epilogue. I mean, there's, you know, you could, we could do another hour just on the post post-music career of, you, of yours, but the two things that I took away from mainly is that these days it sounds like your main, you, the way you make your living is by being the publicist for Vangelis, the guy who did the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. almost 20 years but I haven't worked for him for four years now oh okay yeah. are you retired um, no I'm working on a play oh really first first time I ever tried writing a play yeah and um, yeah it's it's not easy but I've gotten some really good feedback from some people who are trying to help me with it so I'm continuing on um, yeah I first when I when I Vangelis was like a very sudden jolt. All of a sudden, I, w I was actually running a kind of part management office for him in America. And um, I was on this monthly retainer, and I had a big fancy apartment. And, and then suddenly one day he told me he was broke. No, so, really? Yeah, and, that he re and he really didn't need the American office anymore. He wasn't even on an American record label anymore, and he wasn't even working much anymore, doing anything yeah. at all. Just, all I was doing was turning down things for him and rewriting his bio a million times. But uh -huh. So it was very sudden, though, and I sort of always had it in mind that I would maybe move to Palm Springs one day when I was older, <laughs> uh -huh. and suddenly I was like, I think it's time to move to Palm Springs to, number one, get a much smaller apartment and uh, not so grand and pay a lot less rent. It's funny because you move to a beautiful resort to pay less rent, but that's the truth about it out here. Oh, no, really? Yeah. And huh. um, I'm so glad I came out here because I, I wouldn't have wanted to wait till I was older. It's a great place to be my age Good. out here. Okay. And 
when I first came out, I didn't know what I was going to do, um, and I was um, thinking I'd maybe write a follow-up book because you know there's a lot after after all of that after mm-hmm. where I end that book you know I got involved with um so many other like interesting people you know like Tim Burton and you know um Yeah, you mentioned him. How did that what 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 happened there? Oh, that's another whole long story, but oh, I mean boy. him Vangelis, Rufus Wainwright, uh, Roger Waters or I I just you know I um I got involved with a lot of other people that I still could write about. There's a lot doing of publicity about. for them. Well, sort of doing different things for okay. them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, for Tim, I did a whole other thing. I oversaw the reconstruction of a house in Ojai and stuff. Really? So, yeah, wow. Yeah, so crazy stuff. But anyway, huh. um, anyway, I, um, I. Um, you see, I started putting a timeline together, and then I couldn't remember a lot of stuff. I didn't yeah. keep diaries as well as I had earlier on in life, and blah, blah, blah. And I got kind of bored with my own mm. book, and I thought, well, if I'm getting bored with it, so are other people. <laughs> and, um, you know, then I tried to connect with some entertainment stuff going on out here. And out here is funny. They're either people who've had the job for 30 years and they're in their 60s and 70s now, or they're volunteers or, or interns. It's really it's funny uh-huh. to break into any kind of showbiz thing. And then after a while, a friend of mine who's had many things on Broadway and blah, 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 he said, well, you know, I said, you know, I what? I really like Harold and Maud, that movie, and what about doing that as a play? And he goes, well, it's kind of outdated in a way. And he goes, why don't you write your own play about it? I said, well, wouldn't that be like plagiarism? He goes, no, just figure out what it is you liked about that screenplay and write your own based on some themes that are in it. I said, okay. And boy, it took me a year and a half to even get going on it because Mm. I never wrote a play before. And of course, a play is almost all dialogue, so you're right. writing dialogue. And and kind of halfway through, I was like, you know, I think I might be pretty good at dialogue. I'm feeling huh. like this is flowing. And, and so now um, I'm not finished with it, but he's read it just recently. And he, like, is raving over it. And, and he's, like, really an accomplished uh, Broadway person. Wow. And um, so... He's going to help me with it, and so okay. um, we'll see. I'm, is I'm, that I'm, how you pay your bills? Are you on like a retainer or something like that? Is that no, no? I've been basically living on savings and social security. Okay, okay. But I live very frugally. But I have everything I want and need. Good. But I live in a very simple little apartment. But it has a patio and a pool and a beautiful view. And um, yeah. you know, I have. I have a great life still, and uh, mm-hmm. you know this place, Palm Springs, is full of gay boys. Ah, and the gay, they love gay you. boys have always loved me. So <laughs> I'm invite, and the museum. I just was like guest of honor. The museum has a fantastic Andy Warhol show on at the moment. So the museum has had me, you know, make appearances, and uh-huh. and the gay boys take me out to dinner and. You know, nice. I have a really good life here, so I'm so yeah. glad. I mean, I was so angry with Vangelis when it happened so suddenly, but now I'm so glad I'm out here. And uh, that's what I'm basically doing is working on this play. 
excuse me, I just have the hiccups, oh, okay. uh, working on this play. Okay. And we'll see. We might get it on at La Mama in New York at some point. I have to wow. finish it. We'll see. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. And you've been celibate? I, I was listening to Oh, a, yeah. You mentioned oh, it in yeah. the book, and then I was listening to an uh, – I watched an interview of you on YouTube from 1983, and you claimed to be celibate then. Is this complete I, celibacy, or is this just less sex than you were having before? Well, around age 40, I kind of lost all desire for sex. Huh. And I just said, good riddance, let it go. Who needs it? I've had enough. Yeah. And then I did have one little affair with a surfer huh. after that. But <laughs> it was very like I could have taken it or left it, but he yeah. was just like almost forcing himself on me. And I, he was huh. so fabulous. I said, oh, go ahead, just force yourself. Sure, okay. <laughs> but okay. that's all. But basically that was only when I was about 42. And then mm. no no, no desire. For, I lost sexual desire Completely, and it's one of the greatest freedoms I've ever experienced. Really, yeah. really. So no boyfriends, way, or if you have no, boyfriends, no, I don't even. I don't, people say, "Don't you want the companionship, companionship. or the touching, or the no, no, I don't. I want my independence." Is all I wow. Want, you know? And how long have you been like that? Well, basically since I've been forty. Wow. Yeah, okay. which I'm I'm going to be 75 any minute, so 35 yeah. years, except for that one little affair I went yeah. way back then. So, wow. Yeah. No, it's a great freedom. And, boy, it, you know, when you don't project that, you're not a threat to anybody, to their husbands, to their sure. wives, to the gay, to their straight. And, and it's amazing how open people are with you when they meet you and everything because you're just not projecting any kind of threat of sexuality. And it's kind yeah. of fabulous. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, I uh, even though I tried my best to have a deep and thoughtful and provoking conversation with you, and I still feel like, uh, I didn't even begin to scratch the surface. So well, we'll do a part two someday. We Dora. might have to do that sometime okay. and get everything afterwards. I have one last question, and you know, it's this 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 question is something I ask every guest I have, pretty much, is that I want to know if they have any regrets, and I want to put a slight spin on that with you because I want to know if you have any regrets about your morality, and and I don't say that from a judging. I'm not judging in any way. I'm not saying sex is wrong. I'm not saying promiscuity is wrong. I'm not saying anything like that. But you have to admit, I mean, your sexual awakening and your your sex life for so long there made up a big part of who you are. I mean, it, otherwise it wouldn't have been so such a major theme in your book. And considering what morality even is, do you ever think back and think, you know, that may have been fun then, but I wouldn't want, like, my kids to live that way. Or do you care? Well, you know, if I was young in this day and age, I might have a whole other look at it. Because sex for a woman is not a rebellious act anymore. And for me, it was more than sex. It was also a rebellious act. But now that it's not a rebellious act, I don't know that I'd be having so much of it as I did back then. Mm. Now, do I have any regrets about it being immoral? No. I have regrets that I had to have abortions. I think abortion should always be legal. I think one should be understanding of any woman who has to go through that. It's the worst mm. thing you ever have to go through in your life as a woman. Mm. 
I don't regret that I had them because I had to. There was no way I could have mm-hmm. had a child. I would, it would have ruined many lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just no way. And But I regret that I had to have those abortions, mm-hmm. that I wasn't in a position or hadn't had sex with a guy or hadn't had the kind of boyfriend who was willing to be a father. But other than that, no, I don't have any. I regret that I didn't okay. get to sleep with Jimi Hendrix, that's all. Yeah, I bet. And Van Morrison. I was You totally wet my ass. I don't know if I'd want to sleep with Van Morrison. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> only have a conversation with him, but okay. I hear he's a grumpy old man. <laughs> yes, that's what I hear too. And it's so, not like he's you know a groupie magnet or anything like that, but you no. spoke so lovingly of him that I wondered what the, happened. And then at the end, you said, oh, and by the way, I never got with Van Morrison. Probably best I never meet him. There you have it, Cherry Vanilla. Wasn't that great? I love that. I hope you guys enjoyed that too. I hope it wasn't too racy for anybody. I wasn't going to go nuts. I'm not really that kind of a person, but I did want it to be sort of open and honest. And I didn't want her to think that I was afraid to touch on some of these topics. We, I felt like we were just about to get into something kind of a little more interesting there at the very end. And then her other phone rang and she had to go. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. The book again is called Lick Me, How I Became Cherry Vanilla. It is free on Kindle and free on Audible. That's what I did. I downloaded the, I went to look for it on Kindle, found that you could also download the Audible version for free, and I did that, and it was great. And in fact, uh, after reading this book and since talking to her, I read Tony Visconti's biography from Bowie to Bolin to Bowie. I can't remember which one it is, from Bowie to Bolin or Bolin to Bowie. Anyway, something I didn't know. For real Bowie fans, everyone knows that Coco Schwab has been his personal assistant going back years and years and years. Well, Coco, I found out in Tony Visconti's book, took over for Cherry Vanilla when Cherry was let go. Really fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, Anyway, this song right here that you're listening to is called Foxy Bitch, and it's on that first Bad Girl album that is so, so good. Uh, As for next week, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do next week. I've got a bunch of them, a bunch of interviews in the can, and it's kind of like putting a puzzle together. But I'm leaning toward putting out an interview I did with a member of an excellent American alternative rock band of the 90s that uh, broke up after four albums. They never achieved wide wide mainstream success, but they were very, uh, very highly respected and had some hits on like college and alternative radio. So that's what I think I'm going to go with next week. I'm not 100% sure. You know the deal by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makiewicz. All right, we'll talk to you guys next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody.